Hi, and welcome to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we discuss current legal and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a finance partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. We hope from wherever you are listening, you are safe and healthy. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by David Taylor, a special counsel in Pillsbury's corporate practice. David advises clients that are registered and exempt reporting investment advisors, broker-dealers, domestic and offshore private investment funds, and private equity vehicles on regulatory and general corporate matters, as well as other investors in a variety of transactional matters. Hi, Joel. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Welcome, David. I was hoping you could shed some light on what's happening in the funds world. On the one hand, it seems that deal flow has slowed, but at the same time, funds keep raising money and the store of dry powder keeps getting bigger and bigger. Given all the distress that's been out there, there must be lots of choices for patient investors to deploy capital these days. Well, Joel, that's exactly right. We think um, a lot of industry observers think there's a lot of uh, a lot of dry powder sitting on the sidelines, kind of waiting to see what's going to happen next. In particular, you know, I sit in the Houston office, and when you, when you sit in Houston, you whether you do it on purpose or not, you you kind of end up uh, learning and, and observing energy world, and so those are the kind of funds that I've probably seen the most of here recently. There are a lot of opportunities out there that we think is uh, is coming down the pike. In particular, if if history is any guide, then we are probably going to see a, a lot of opportunistic fund activity acquiring um, what we call upstream energy assets. Now, just a real brick without going too far afield here, in the energy space, there's upstream, midstream, and downstream assets. Upstream assets are those assets that you kind of use to drill a hole in the ground. Midstream is kind of the pipelines, the stuff that gets the oil for or the, the gas from the, the well to the refinery, and downstream is the refinery. Well, upstream assets are, are the is, is the the stuff that's used to drill and the technology that's used to drill a hole in the ground. Uh, every time you see some kind of an oil crash or some kind of an energy crash, which you're kind of seeing at the same time, you tend to see an uptick in activity of opportunistic funds chasing assets that are related to that space. If I had to guess and 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 put on my uh, my Carnac, I, I think it was Carnac, right, with Johnny Carson. Put on my Carnac hat. Yes, that's, right. that's what I. Uh, that's, that's kind of what I what I see coming down the pike in the energy space in terms of funds. That that's great, David. Um, could you also tell us a little bit about some other types of funds? I know there are different kinds of funds that tend to see a lot of action in volatile times. For example, what can you tell us about opportunity funds, uh, which which I know thrive on volatility? And juxtapose that with volatility strategy funds, which try to smooth out the highs and lows. Well, so those are terrific points. Um, in this space, the we, we've kind of seen uh, to kind of go to the the second question first. In whenever you see volatile markets, that is markets where there's a lot of highs and a lot of lows, you see investors start chasing consistent returns. They're trying to round the edges off of the volatile market. And those are volatility strategies. Volatility strategies tend to involve using either derivatives or some kind of a hedging mechanism. And it involves a couple different assumptions. One of them is a long-term assumption about the value of the asset, typically a stock. But uh, another one involves a long-term assumption about either the yield curve when it comes to interest rates or 
some other issue that, that tends to contribute to volatility. And so while you might be taking a long position, you will go short sufficient to hedge the risk that, that might be re related to the volatility of the asset. Right now, we're seeing asset managers. In fact, I'm working with asset managers who are kind of dusting off or inventing themselves in the volatility space. It's got its own issues. It's not perfect. A continuously upward trending market tends to see lower returns if you're employing a volatility strategy. But that being said, that's exactly what some investors are looking for right now. And so managers that are operating in that space are getting a little traction. Now, your other question was about opportunistic funds. Opportunistic funds are some of those funds. I'll use a negative term, but I don't mean it negatively. Sometimes people derisively will call them vulture funds, but they aren't necessarily negatively spaced vulture funds. They're funds that have capital and are looking for assets that might be distressed assets. That might be the only market for those assets right now. I use the upstream assets maybe as an example for that. But those assets can kind of get cleaned up and redeployed with clean capital or clean balance sheets if you're acquiring you know, entities and redeployed in a good space. There are investment strategies. This is something we can talk about if it's helpful. There are particular aspects that opportunistic funds tend to use, you know, when it comes to both the terms of the funds and the regulatory requirements. It's worth further discussion. If you are thinking about investing in an opportunistic fund or you're thinking about setting one up, there are a few quirks, regulatorily speaking, that you probably should keep an eye on right now. But that space is going to be pretty active, we believe, in the next six months to a year. I know one other type of fund, David, that's also interesting in the current environment but might not immediately come to people's minds is activist funds. They're stereotypically disruptive of public companies or they have a political or cultural agenda. But I've heard that in uncertain times, they can also be an alternate source of funding or liquidity, almost like a white knight to a company that could otherwise be in trouble. I think that's a very good point. And white knight is exactly the term. If, if you're a troubled fund and you're looking for capital, a lot of activist funds are looking at this as a good time. If you use 2008 and 2009, kind of the Great Recession, as, as a guide point, we would expect to see an uptick in activist fund activity in the next, in the next year or two. Those were kind of the high points after the, after the crash. Activist funds stepped in picked up distressed assets and used that as an opportunity to, you know, try to, to push their agenda with either public companies or private investment vehicles. And, and those agendas could be everything from, you know, good governance or a change in governance to, to social justice or climate change or, or labor relations, any of the things that you might see activist investors um, go to work on. Now, we don't, there's an element here that's unprecedented. You know, with a, I can't say the last time that we really had fund activity after a pandemic. And so, um, you know, we are all, again, putting on that Karnak hat when it comes to saying what's going to happen next. But there's a lot of discussion out there about activist funds. And uh, if history, at least what we believe the history will, will be any guide, I bet you see some some pretty good headlines about activist funds in the next year or two. And companies that, that are looking for capital shouldn't necessarily turn their nose up at, you know, activist capital. They just need to understand that it's going to come with a, with a price. And companies that are open to change, there's probably an opportunity for them there. 
Thanks for that tour through uh, the world of different funds, Dave. Anything to note on the regulatory front, or is it pretty much business as usual for funds in that area? It's, I, I don't know if I'd call it business as usual, but there's well, the regulators have certainly been active in this in this time period. One of the things that's been most interesting to me, and it's it's sort of the definition of, of um, esoteric, I guess, but it's been interesting to me how people have coped with electronic execution of documents. The SEC has some pretty tight guidance on what constitutes, you know, electronic delivery of everything from statements to uh, investment acknowledgments. And so it's worth, you know, digging in with your with your counsel or your advisor if you're considering that kind of thing. But just important to know, so many people are are dealing with it right now and folks who I never would have imagined would be open to electronic signature or electronic execution are having to work through the, the issue. And so if you if you find yourself either as an investor or uh, a promoter considering, you know, the issues that COVID causes when it comes to electronic execution, you're not the only one. Reach out to your counsel and, and, and work through it. A lot of there's a little more flexibility right now than there probably historically has been. Thanks for that, Dave, and for giving us some insight into what looks like to be a growing market uh, for an opportunistic investment in the current environment in the months ahead. And now it's time for This Week in History. On June 2, 1896, at the young age of 22, Guglielmo Marconi applied for a patent for his new invention, the radio. Without the radio as a forerunner, it is possible that podcasts would not exist. So this week, we give a special shout-out to Marconi and the radio. And to all of you tuning in, thank you for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast. 